The drafts are over. We're switching into in-season mode. And we'll talk about that and other things with BaseballHQ.com Managing Editor Ray Murphy next on Baseball HQ Radio. Hello, babe. I'm Lou Gehrig. Listen, Lou, how did you get the stocking home run? It was like this. I watched you and read how much money you were getting, and I got to thinking. Thinking? With what? Yes. I mean the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? Yes. (laughs) Don. (laughs) Hey, Don. Tell Murray about the time you won the game when you slid into home plate. (laughs) Oh, Jack, I'd rather not. I'm embarrassed. I don't blame you. (laughs) Tell me, did they ever find that catcher? As pitchers try to hit you, you play baseball and you got to stay in there because the guy throws a curveball at you. It may break across the plate and your mind says, stay in there. But your body says, Let's, we got to move. <laughs> baseball is played on a diamond in a park, the baseball park. Football is played on a gridiron in a stadium. War Memorial Stadium. In baseball, you wear a cap. In football, you wear a helmet. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of April 7th and show number 12 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to BaseballHQ.com managing editor Ray Murphy, we'll have our regular contributors from the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols, our American League analyst columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week talking about avoiding cognitive dissonance after the draft. In his regular minor league minute, Rob Gordon looks at Cincinnati shortstop Zach Cozart. And in his master notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about managing the false certainty of opening day rosters. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We've had our opening day. The season's going. we got to talk some baseball. And to open our show, as always, our League Watch News reports... Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League and leading off the National League. It's our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Nick, uh, the opening night lineup for San Diego did not feature some players that at the start of spring training we might have expected it would. Uh, James Darnell was sent down fairly early. Carlos Quentin was injured. And this seems to have created the possibility of a uh, playing time ex. This seems to have created the possibility of extra playing time for Jesus Guzman. It seems to have. At least to start the season, Jesus Guzman is going to get some, some extra at-bats, we think, especially with Carlos Quinton on the DL. And You know, if you look back to last season, Jesus Guzman made a real uh, splash in the second half. He hit, uh, he hit extremely well, uh, wound up with a three twelve batting average, five home runs and 247 at-bats. Um, most, you know, we, we sort of dismissed this as a, a kind of career year. He was a, a, a 28-year-old journeyman coming up, and uh, a 300-year uh, co- 
a 300 hitter in the minors, uh, but his MLEs didn't look all that good. And we thought, well, you know, the guy just had a had a high hit rate, which he did, 36%. And uh, so uh, not someone that you wanted to invest in in terms of a keeper league at the end of last season. But as we head into into the start of this season, uh, Jesus Guzman got hot at the end of spring training, just as he did in the second half last year. Finished spring training with uh, 297 uh, batting average, 594 slugging. Uh, six home runs and 64 at-bats, so really was kind of heating up the way he had in the second half last year, and now looks to get some playing time. So maybe a guy you don't want to ignore completely as we go into drafts. He's not going to play regularly, not going to play every day, uh, but as long as Carlos Quinton is out, he's going to get be in the lineup, and he may also find some time at first base, spelling yonder Alonso against uh, tough left-handed hitters, so he could get in the lineup. And if he does get in the lineup, Nick, the second half of 2011 does suggest this guy may have somehow put it all together at age 27 last year and figured things out. And if he does, and if he gets that playing time, it'll be on his shoulders maybe to have a a hot start, or at least a decent start. But those stats that you cited, all of which were pretty much compiled in the second half last year, it's pretty hard to turn up your nose at uh, five home runs and nine bags, kind of a, a little bonus there for a decent power hitter to, to pick up nine bags. In a full season, you're, you're talking about a 10-20 guy with sort of 90-level RBI potential. Not bad for a dollar or two. No, not at all. I mean, he's someone you could pick up at the end of an auction and, and, and stash away and maybe get some, uh, some profit from. Over in Atlanta, the Braves have picked up Juan Francisco from the Cincinnati Reds to caddy for Chipper Jones at third base. Jones, of course, is injured and is often injured. So what do we make of Juan Francisco as a potential reasonably high at-bat guy in Atlanta? You know, Juan Francisco is a pretty pretty well-established profile. The guy has good power. Uh, 143 PX uh, last season, four home runs this spring. So uh, he's, he's a, he can bring you some power. He can get some home runs. But he's also an extremely free swinger. Um, in his in his career, his eye is 0.18. Uh, in the spring, he got 16 strikeouts in 51 at-bats and not a single walk. So here's a guy who swings at everything uh, and strikes out a lot. Uh, and you just need to keep that in mind. That means, of course, a real uh, a real batting average uh, problem potentially down the line for Juan Francisco. Yeah, you'd have to suspect that his batting average is not going to be real great. It was two fifty eight last year in limited at-bats. He's always had limited at-bats and not a big batting average guy in the minor leagues either. I think the interesting thing here also to keep in mind is if you had an eye on Eric Hinsky in the Atlanta lineup, you might want to uh, rethink that a little bit as well because it looks like uh, he and uh, some others are going to be on the outside looking in for playing time. Yeah, it does indeed. I mean, the reason for getting Francisco was uh, was not entirely for backup. I mean, he's he's a young guy. He's got uh, got some future ahead of him. So uh, the Braves uh, and, and Chipper Jones, of course, uh, says this is going to be his last year. So the Braves are looking at what they're going to do in the future at uh, at third base. I don't think it's going to be Juan Francisco, but they may take a real good look at him. Over in Chicago, Jock Thompson wrote up. Uh, Jeff Samarja, who was a relief pitcher last year, of course a very famous wide receiver for the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, and this was quite a surprise, Nick, to a lot of people. Uh, Samarja ends up with the number three slot in the rotation. Yeah, Samarja is a guy who, who uh, age 27, could actually have some, some upside. He pitched very well in relief last year, a 2.97 ERA. But the thing to, that Samarja has dealt with throughout his career that has been a problem has been control. He has trouble finding the plate. Good Dom guy, strikes out a lot of people. Uh, Dom rate of almost nine last season, but walked uh, almost five batters per nine innings. So if he can get his control under control, if he can keep the ball over the plate, Samarja has some real upside. And that'll be the real trick in determining whether he's able to do that uh, as we begin uh, this season and look at him in the, in the starting rotation. He kind of profiles as a guy that if you're – 
interested in pursuing a pennant in your league this year, he might not be the guy to look at because there's there's an awful lot of risk attached to this. I mean, expecting a guy to go from five and a half walks per nine innings to something more on the order of three or uh, something a little more acceptable is something of a tall order. But Jeff Samarja might be the kind of guy you want to roster and hang on to for future years. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, he still has some growing to do, and that's certainly a thing to take a look at, is that he may have better potential next year if he can stay in the rotation uh, than he certainly does this season. And finally, Nick, uh, the New York Mets made Frank Francisco their closer this year. In March, uh, 554 ERA, his velocity apparently down, he's got knee troubles. Is Frank Francisco the kind of guy you want to look at? And if not, who else in New York might uh, pick up the ball in the ninth? Well, you know, we talked about it. The, the baseball forecaster called it uh, correctly. I think we're looking at the soap opera as the closer turns. Frank Francisco, the last two years, has supposedly begun to start the as the closer for his teams. Uh, two years ago in Texas, a year ago in Toronto. Uh, and then I had uh, struggled with uh, diminished velocity, uh, had problems early, and wound up with somebody else taking the ball uh, and, and did not close. And so he begins this year with the same situation in New York, uh, problems with his velocity being down, problems with the knee, uh, looked like he was going to have trouble starting the season. But, you know, you look back at, at those last couple of years while Francisco has struggled in early in the season, and overall he did not pitch poorly. Uh, 2010, a 3.76 ERA. 2011, 3.55 ERA. Uh, he needs to get through the early part of the season, obviously, and uh, still hang on to the role. Uh, but, but he seems to smooth things out as he goes along. Uh, Francisco is a good Dom guy. Uh, 2010, 2009, 2008, struck out more than 10 batters per nine innings. That's an excellent Dom rate. At the same time, uh, command ratios above three. So here's a guy that's got the goods if he can overcome what seems to be an early season jinx. Uh, he started the year as the closer in New York. Uh, got through the first game, picked up a save in his first game, a, a perfect inning. Uh, no problem. So if he can avoid the DL over the first couple of months of the season with this uh, with knee problem that supposedly was bothering him, he can actually have some real value. The other thing to think about is the, the, the Mets don't have a lot of choices in that bullpen. They've really committed to him. Bobby Parnell's a, a possibility, uh, but they've really got a commitment to Francisco over the first couple of months of the season. Yeah, I was going to say Bobby Parnell looks like really the only other option that they have out there. So, uh, yeah, it looks like the Mets are kind of rolling the dice with Frank Francisco. And the question is, do you want to do the same thing in your fantasy league? I guess the question is, how much risk tolerance do you have? Yeah, how much risk tolerance? That's the question because this guy's skills are good. I mean, we're looking at a guy who's got uh, certainly has the skills to close. Uh, just a bit of a jinx about him. But if you look at BPV, last five years, they had closer-worthy BPVs. That's a good, good strong run. Or the last four years, I'm sorry. Last four years had closer-worthy BPVs. That's a good, strong run. So the skills are there if the health is there. That's the real question. All right, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move to the American League. It's BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to the show. Opening weekend, Patrick. Great. What an exciting time. Yeah, it's the one of the best weekends of the year, no doubt about it. And to start the year, the Boston Red Sox have a bullpen issue. Their closer, Andrew Bailey, that they traded for in the offseason, often injured, starts the year this year injured on the 60-day DL with some kind of thumb issues, having surgery. And uh, to the surprise of some, Bobby Valentine says that the closer is not going to be Mark Melanson, who was, uh, seemed to be the odds-on favorite, but instead he's going with last year's very successful swingman, Alfredo Aceves. 
Boy, what a shocking decision. I don't see any reason for this. Aceves has never really been a closer. He doesn't have very good stuff. His command last year, 1.9, I believe. I mean, this guy's always been a mediocre pitcher, always done it with smoke and mirrors. His ground ball and fly ball rates fluctuate back and forth. He's been inconsistent in most every way. He does have a good spring, but he really doesn't have the dominance history. He doesn't have reliable control. His walk rate has risen the last three years. This is not the kind of guy you're going to be entrusting the end of your games to, especially when you have a proven closer in Melanson right there. Yeah, Melanson certainly has the skills. Absolutely. He's 8.0 dominance in 2011, 3.07 XERA, uh, 2.5 command. He gets ground balls, 57% ground ball rate. Uh, nothing wrong with Mark Melanson as a solid closer candidate, and many thought that's the reason they got him over the winter is, is to be the closer before the – Maybe Bailey, some people were banding about, wouldn't be the closer because Melanson's skills were so good. Well, Bailey's skills are good, too. A lot of strikeouts there, which everybody likes. But you certainly would think that given the uh, proclivities for long balls in uh, Fenway Park that you'd like to have a 60% ground ball guy like Melanson who also gets a decent number of strikeouts as well. Yeah, Melanson didn't have a very good spring training with a 550-90 array, but neither did a Sevis. And uh, Melanson had a 4-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio. I just... It's one of those things, and this is why we say draft skills, not roles. You may get more contribution from Melanson as a setup guy on a great team like the Red Sox as opposed to a Sevis who's only going to provide saves and has mediocre skills that may hurt you in the other categories. And a Sevis did a really good job as a swingman last year, and it's kind of odd that they would take a guy who, given his skill set, had quite good success in a defined role, and now they take him and say, well, you were a success doing this role, therefore we'll move you to a completely different role. It, it, as you said, when you add up all of the moving parts, it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Matt, I'm going to be talking to Ray Murphy later. Of course, he lives in Boston. He follows the Red Sox very closely, and I'll ask him about it. Another bullpen in disarray is down in uh, Tampa where Kyle Farnsworth had a great year last year and all signs pointed to a fairly stable situation, but he's out with injury and they've got all kinds of replacement candidates. They have lots of candidates, but uh, they don't have a Melanson in their bullpen they could fall back on. Joel Peralta did the job last September, but uh, while he has good command, 3.4, he really struggles with a long ball. He has a 54% fly ball rate. He's a fly ball pitcher, and that's not the thing you want to have in Tampa Bay or New York or Boston when you play those teams. You want to keep the ball on the ground. His expected ERA last year was 3.93, so he's a very unreliable candidate, even though he's had great surface stats the last couple of years. They do have Fernando Rodney, who's had the role before with the Angels, Tigers in the past, but he hasn't had a 2-to-1 strikeout-to-walk ratio since 2007. Uh, he did have 37 saves in 2009 and 14 in 2010. He gets ground balls, but he can't find the plate half the time. His control is 5.1, and that's going to be far below the 2.0 command that we need because he doesn't strike out quite a batter an inning. Finally, they have J.P. Howe coming back from injury, who has a nice strikeout rate, almost a batter per inning, but he, again, struggles with his control even though he gets the ball on the ground. And, of course, being a left-hander, major league managers tend to resist putting left-handers in the closer role. So it may be a closer by committee in Tampa Bay until Farnsworth comes back because they really don't have somebody who sets themselves apart as having the best skills in the bullpen. The Rays trusted Howell with the closer role for at least part of the time, but that was two years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was because he was out most of last year with that injury. 
Matt, the Yankees had a lot of discussions and a lot of people looking at their rotation during the offseason because they seem to have something of an embarrassment of riches going into spring training. But then Michael Pineda, whom they acquired through trade from Seattle, went on the DL. He was also kind of overweight coming into camp and really ineffective during spring training. And uh, so they seem to have ended up with uh, CC Sabathia, of course, at the top of the line, then Hiroki Kuroda, who came over from uh, Los Angeles, then uh, Ivan Nova gets the third spot, and here's something of a surprise. Phil Hughes is back, gets the fourth spot, and Freddie Garcia, the veteran, gets the fifth spot. Which of these guys are going to be rosterable, getting past Sabathia, of course? Hughes has tremendous upside, Patrick, and this is the guy who was 18 and 8 in 2010 with a 4.19 ERA. It was fully supported by his BPIs. He had a 2.5 strikeout to walk ratio. The only reservation with Hughes is he's a fly ball pitcher, 47% fly ball rate in 2010 and 45% in 2011. And Yankee Stadium being so friendly to the hitter, that's a dangerous combination. But Hughes is still relatively young. He's dominated before in the bullpen. He's had good success as a starter. He did struggle through some injuries, so this is an indication he's healthy. And and Phil Hughes is a guy with some upside that was going very late in more drafts than I expected because of his reputation, because of his young age. Uh, People actually stayed away from him more than I expected. I know I got him on a few rosters, and uh, I'm glad to ride him here with his newfound role with that offense behind him. And what about Freddie Garcia? This is a guy who has had skills but also has had struggles. Freddie Garcia is one of those guys I just want to hate so bad because he doesn't strike out anybody. And because he's on the Yankees, he gets wins and people overdraft him. He's got a three-year drop in his ground ball rate, even though he's a ground ball pitcher. But reality is his expected ERA is, you know, four, four and a half every year. And on the Yankees with that lineup, that does lead to wins. And that's not too bad to pick off the waiver wire or have as the last pitcher in your rotation. Uh, I don't like him as a pitcher. I don't expect him to get any better. But if he can just maintain what he was in 2011, which isn't out of the question, uh, you know, he's a guy who could be okay. Now, he did post a 362 ERA in 2011. It's not going to be that good. His expected ERA is 424. So if you can roster that ERA in about the four and a quarter range, you know, he's he's okay. And I really, you know, skills-wise, he's not someone to get excited about. But the price he's coming for in many leagues, because it seems like he's been around so long, he's really not that bad. Yeah, when I look at his skill set, Matt, I, I see a guy who's just mediocre in almost every respect. He's right around two strikeouts for every walk, which is good. That's what we're looking for. His strikeouts are right around 6.0, not dominant, not not a soft tosser. Just right in the middle there, his walk rate's about three per nine. His home run per, uh, his home run rate is about one per game. Everything about this guy says middle of the road. But so far, very reliable, and you can't discount with that fine bullpen and excellent offense in New York. You know, he had 12 wins last year in uh, 25 starts. Could easily repeat that. About an average starter. He's like Mark Burley, but he throws right-handed, and he happens to have the Yankees behind him, as you mentioned, with a great bullpen and a great offense. So that takes a maybe slightly below-average pitcher and makes him a slightly above-average pitcher. Because even though we don't want to chase wins, certainly if you have a choice between two pitchers, one on the Yankees and one on the Astros, you're going to take the one on the Yankees. Yeah, why wouldn't you? Exactly. That's an excellent point. Uh, Another pitcher who is very, very good, but he doesn't have a real big profile amongst a lot of people who follow baseball from a fantasy perspective, is Dan Heron of the Angels. This guy is uh, very quietly an excellent, excellent pitcher. 
This guy hasn't had an expected ERA or an actual ERA above four in the last five years. He's been very consistent skills-wise. Uh, just puts the ball, he throws the ball over the plate. His walk rate last year was 1.2 batters per nine innings. And even though his strikeout rate dropped a batter per nine, it's still 7.3, which is excellent. His overall command ratio, 5.8, was the highest since 2009 and the second highest of the last five years. So this guy is certainly not aging. He's just maintaining these excellent skills. He's also uh, kept his fly ball rate in check. The homer has always been an issue for him back in 2009-2010. His home run per fly ball rates were a little high at 11 and 12%, but his base performance value, his summary metric, what we look at, we look at all of his skills, has been 111, excuse me, 102 or higher each of the last five seasons. Last year, 118, you know, right in the middle, right in his average. So his 317 ERA, very much supported by his skills. This guy's Mr. Consistency. He does it year in, year out. And this is one of the guys that, as you look at people taking pitchers earlier in drafts, which will be on my Market Pulse column uh, this weekend on BaseballHQ.com, is that the biggest trend we see is people taking pitchers earlier. And although we don't recommend that, when you look at the reliability of some of the starting pitchers now, the old days of, of unreliable starters or more reliable hitters just aren't there. This is a guy who's very reliable, pitching on a great team, who's learning how to pitch. He now relies more on his cut fastball the last two years than he did in the past. He hardly ever used it before 2009. Now he used it 48% of the time in 2011. So his fastball is a little slower, but it's got that cutter movement, and he's getting outs with it. He's pitching to contact, pitching smart. This is exactly the kind of guy you can get after the big names go in that second tier of starting pitchers that can really provide an anchor for your team. And, of course, most uh, fantasy owners have had their drafts. But even having said that, Dan Heron's the kind of guy who often finds his way around onto two or three fantasy teams during a year because nobody wants to trade Felix Hernandez, and certainly nobody wants to trade those top-level guys, even CC Sabathia from New York, guys like that. But Dan Heron's one of those guys that, because he's so low-key in being excellent, a lot of owners have no trouble saying, yeah, I'll give you Dan Heron, but just don't ask me for, for my top guy. I was just looking at his stats, Matt. Since he became a full-time pitcher in New York, in uh, Oakland, pardon me, in 2005, listen to these uh, game start statistics. 34, then 34, then 34, then 33, then 33, then 35, and 34 again. And in the, t in the last five years, he's led the league three times in, in, in command ratio, strikeouts to walks, and in whip once at 1.003 a couple of years ago in Arizona. Very quietly, a terrific guy to try to get on your roster. These are the kind of guys that, that you learn about from studying the numbers instead of listening to the headlines. And that's what we try to do here at Baseball HQ is give you this. Dan Heron is every bit as good and reliable pitcher almost as anyone out there, yet he's going to go a round or two or, or two or three bucks less. And that's a round where you could have drafted someone else. That's a couple bucks you could spend on someone else. And that's the difference between a winning team and a losing team. Last year, Matt, in Cleveland, Josh Tomlin won 12 games, had a respectable four-and-a-quarter ERA and an excellent 1.08 whip. It doesn't look like he's got the skills to support those kind of numbers, though. No, he's similar to Heron in the fact he doesn't walk anybody, 1.1 walks per nine innings, but the difference is he can't strike out anybody, 4.8 strikeouts per nine innings. He had a very favorable hit rate at 26%. In 2011, he uh, is a fly ball pitcher again, usually 40% or higher. Uh, so he's doing it with smoke and mirrors. His fastball averages about 88 miles an hour. And when you're a control pitcher and you're getting the ball over the plate, 
and you have a fly ball tendency, you're really putting a luck in play more than someone else who can strike their way out of the inning. You're relying on your fielders. You're relying on the luck that those balls aren't going to go in. Think of Kevin Slowey and where he went from such a great pitcher to now not even able to make the Indians roster, who's a fly ball pitcher with good control. You just put yourself out there for such a negative consequence when you're not dominating. And, uh, yes, you can get some of these guys hot when they get lucky. They're serviceable pitchers sometimes in the majors, but they're not going to lead your fantasy team to the title. And uh, barely rosterable in a mixed league, and I mean in a uh, deep uh, American League-only league, and not rosterable really at all in a mixed league. And before I let you go, Matt, uh, I wonder if you caught the uh, Toronto opener yesterday. I shouldn't say yesterday. I wonder if you caught the Toronto opener against Cleveland and a big, long, extra inning game, longest opening day, I think, in history. And if you noticed the Rajai Davis play where he put a ball in play with a bunt and then just stood there watching while they turned a double play. And this is a guy who can run. There's no way he should be bunting into a double play. Well, it was very disgusting. I was watching the game since I do cover the Indians here for Baseball HQ and appear on their network occasionally. So I was watching that game. I did see that play, and I was just disgusted. How one of the fastest guys in the league can get doubled off on a bunt is beyond me. He literally just stood there until they threw it to second. Um, and in the major leagues, I mean, he would not, he'd be farmed out if he was a minor leaguer, but because he's got a contract and the Jays need him so much and that outfield is a right-handed compliment, they're going to keep him on the roster. But I guarantee you, John Farrell had a long meeting with him afterwards and, uh, you know, chewed him out pretty good, I would imagine, or I would hope. But it's just, it's amazing to see the lack of hustle out there, the players who watch their ball, the players who don't hustle as a little league coach. It's so difficult now to show them a model on TV to play the game the way it's supposed to be played. Hunter Pence is one that comes to mind that may not look smooth, but darn it, he's going to give it 110% every time out there. And uh, those are the kind of guys that you want to show your kids the model after. And, And that's what the fans want. And we wonder why baseball attendance isn't as high as maybe it could be. It's that kind of effort we want to see from the players every day, that they care and they're giving their best in any sport. I think you're right about that. I wonder if it's a, some kind of Toronto thing because earlier in that same game, Edwin Encarnacion hit a ball that looked like it was going to go out and he put on quite a show coming out of the batter's box, standing there and staring and starting his little uh, skip steps and tossing the bat with great elan, only it wasn't out. It hit the wall and bounced back and he ended up with a double that had he been hustling, he could have at least put some pressure on Cleveland to make a play to stop him from getting a triple. And I wonder, do you think this could be symptomatic of something that Toronto is going to need to address with all of this showboating and stuff going on. You wouldn't think Jose Bautista, as a clubhouse leader, would stand for that for five minutes. Well, I think sometimes we assume that the best player on the team is the clubhouse leader, and personalities are not always the case. They don't always work out that way. I, I want to know what they've won to be able to have that kind of swagger because I haven't noticed them in the playoffs in the last several years. And I would think that John Farrell is a perfect time to nip it in the bud right now, first game of the season, to say, what have you won? But I mean, the way the game has transformed now, the players' contracts are so high, the managers can't discipline them. In the old days, you'd send the guy to the minors, you'd bench him for five days. Now you bench him for five days, his agent's going to cause and want to file a union grievance because he can't hit his incentive clauses. So the game has totally changed, and I think until they get the players being paid per performance, you're just going to see this. If you have the guys working for every single dollar they earn in any industry, it's going to, you're going to get a lot more performance. Well, we could argue about that, I guess, and I'm sure that the uh, if the if they want to bench uh, Rajai Davis or Edwin Encarnacion, the union's not going to be able to do anything about it. But you'll have your market pulse commentary a little later in the show. What's your topic this week? 
This week we're going to talk about how cognitive dissonance can ruin a good draft. All right, Matt, thanks very much for doing this. Enjoy the rest of opening weekend, and we'll catch up with you again next week. Look forward to it, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview with BaseballHQ.com managing editor Ray Murphy is next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. I was asking you, sir, uh, why it is that baseball wants this bill passed. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they'd want it passed is to keep baseball going as the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. I'm not in here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business that was ever put out in the hundred years at the present time. Well, Mr. Mantle, do you uh, have any observations with reference to uh, the affability of the antitrust laws to baseball? Well, my, my views are just about the same as Casey's. <laughs> Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. A pleasure now to be joined by Ray Murphy, the managing editor at BaseballHQ.com, also a speculator columnist, and every so often a guy who sweeps up uh, after the parties are over. Ray, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Happy opening week, Patrick. Yeah, it's great. Uh, the busiest man at BaseballHQ.com, and we'll talk about that in a minute, Ray. But before we get started, you're in Boston, a fan and a keen observer of all things Red Sox. So I really have to ask you, uh, Alfredo, Aceves is the closer? Yeah, you know, one of the things I'm learning in the last uh, you know month or so since Red Sox camp opened is I always felt like I had a very good handle on you know the principles at least by which uh, Theo Epstein and Terry Francona made their decisions and I always felt like I you know, well, I didn't necessarily know what the decision was ahead of time when they made one I could usually at least reason together what had driven them to that decision and I don't have that level of comfort with uh, Charrington and Valentine at this point I don't exactly know what's going on I mean we talked last time I was on the show I think about Daniel Bard and how I thought he might get transition back to the bullpen as a non-traditional relief ace sort of thing and I, not to keep beating that horse, but I still think the move to Aceves as closer is designed to set up some non-traditional relief usage. Um, son also had a you know pretty shaky spring at times, so that's a very thin bullpen right now and maybe having Aceves as the closer is set up to let him get four, five, six, seven outs as a, as a closer on a particular night when he's fresh. The guy has a rubber arm, and that's probably the best thing you can say about him from a uh, from a usage perspective is he can go out there an awful lot. But traditionally, that's not where you want to use a closer. You don't want the closer to, you know, it's tough to get a closer to throw 90 or 100 innings out of the pen, and a Seves is, un- is capable of that. So how do you get the kind of usage out of him that he's capable of? I think you have to use him differently than you would use a normal closer. So I continue to expect that there's going to be some creative and make it up as we go non-traditional role assignment in the Boston pen I just don't know exactly what that's going to look like right now 
And a few years ago, they tried the. Uh, they were one of the first teams actually to try the bullpen by high leverage situations approach. They didn't have the right pitchers to do it, and it didn't work very well. And as a result, they kind of retreated with their tail between their legs and went back to the traditional seventh, eighth, ninth inning guys kind of setup. Is there a chance that they may be taking another run at? We're going to put our best pitcher out there when we need outs, regardless of whether it's a ninth inning and a save situation, which is the dumbest stat in all of baseball. I think there is a chance of that. I guess my counter-argument to that is they're sort of at a point where regardless of how you divvy up the roles or try to put your best reliever in the highest leverage situation, the relievers they just have right now just aren't good enough. And all of the shuffling of the deck chairs isn't going to cover that up. And that, you know, a Sevis is... A Sevis can be used a lot and has a rubber arm and has some decent skills. And Melanson showed a nice ground ball strikeout combination in Houston last year when he took over as the closer. But that's about all there is in this pen. And you can't survive in the AL East with two relievers. So I don't care how you use the two relievers. The two just isn't enough. So I don't know how they're going to paper over that problem. Well, maybe they'll uh, finally make an offer that Roy Oswalt can't refuse, and that frees them up to put Bard back in there. And Bard's a, not exactly a rubber arm, but a guy who's been very capable as a bullpen guy. They could have three decent guys, and it's not like every night you need the high leverage relief. I think that's exactly right. I think that has to be what the plan is, whether it's signing Oswalt or getting Max Osaka back from the DL in June. I think as soon as an opportunity comes to replace Bard in the rotation, they're going to have to take advantage of that and eventually get Bard back in the road, in the bullpen. And as you say, if you put Bard with a Sevis and Melanson, you're in pretty good shape at that point. And then if you get Bailey back in July or August, that starts to look like a contending caliber, caliber bullpen. The trick will be to not get buried in before you get those reinforcements come June or July or August. And, of course, that's assuming that Andrew Bailey manages to survive the rest of the year when he comes back from his injury because he doesn't have a tremendous track record of doing that. Yeah, that is another open question. You're quite right. Uh, we just had our big draft weekend, millions and millions of drafts all over the place. Uh, I'm sure you have a National Fantasy Baseball Championship draft. Uh, How did your team work out? Pretty happy with the team this year uh, on a number of levels. Um, last year kind of walked away from the draft knowing we had some serious problems to address in the pitching staff and actually did a decent job during the year of addressing those problems. But uh, we had drafted what we thought was a very good core offense and it just underperformed with the likes of uh, Jason Hayward and other disastrous picks. So that team sort of struggled all year. This year, uh, I think the worst thing I can say about the team is, you know, as a Red Sox fan living in Boston, my first two picks were Yankees. So uh, depending on how you look at it, I'm either conflicted or properly hedged on the AL East race. So open the draft with Cano, <coughs> excuse me, Cano and Teixeira as our first two picks. And added, uh, you know, B.J. Upton and Victorino as outfielders early on, and uh, Hardy and Yadier Molina, you know, very much followed what I had laid out in the straight draft guide earlier in the offseason about trying to build a balanced offense in the first 12 rounds and cover as many diverse positions as you can and leave yourself with maximum flexibility for the end game to kind of cherry pick whatever's available. So it was one of those cases where, you know, I wrote something and then, you know, practiced what I preached and took it to the draft table and was pretty happy with how it turned out. Um, on the pitching side, uh, anchored our rotation with C.J. Wilson and Matt Moore and Josh Beckett. 
which feels pretty good right now, especially with more uh, starting the season in the rotation, which wasn't completely clear for much of March, but that has worked out well. Uh, closers, Betancourt, hopefully Matt Thornton. Uh, there's been more noise about him not closing in the last week or so than I would like to hear as a new Matt Thornton owner, but hopefully that works out. And uh, we added Jonathan Broxton as a speculation late in the draft when uh, we drafted the earlier of the two NFBC weeks, so the Royals' bullpen situation wasn't quite clear yet between Broxton and Holland. Uh, so Broxton seems to have won that job. So, uh, you know, one of the problems when you, you have is if you don't draft, you know, this past weekend right before opening day or even the weekend after opening day, if you draft earlier in March, you kind of end up just crossing your fingers and hoping that some of the plays you make at the draft table end up just making it to opening day and being the right calls. For instance, uh, I drafted in the Labor Mixed League, which was, I think, uh, the last weekend in February, and thought I had a great draft, except my uh, two closers, who were both healthy at the time, were Ryan Madsen and uh, Joaquin Soria. And, well, I feel a heck of a lot less good about that team now going into opening day, even though I felt pretty good about it back in February. So that was a case where, you know, spring training was not kind to an early drafted team, but uh, feeling a little bit better about how that went for my NFBC team. So we'll see how that plays out in season. Yeah, that's kind of doubly disappointing when you have a draft like that and then lose guys who, if nothing else, have been highly reliable. That's that's a tough break for your team in labor mixed, I know. Uh, Ray, easily the biggest shift in the fantasy year is when we make the transition from preparing for draft and having the draft into in-season management. Give us some tips from your uh, background and experience on how do you manage that transition? You know, I think the hardest thing to do as you start to see the stats come in or, you know, I think we all know that the small sample sizes that we see for the first couple of weeks are too hard, are too flimsy to draw any conclusions from. But, you know, the hardest thing to do is to do nothing. And yet, so often, that's the best thing to do. You know, it was, I think it was literally opening day last year where Jed Lowry started to take off. And it was sometime in the first week when, you know, Sam Fold started, you know, being associated with a Superman cape and all that sort of thing. And everyone reacted to that stuff, and people threw a lot of fat money at those guys. And yet, by the end of April, they were pretty much back to earth. And if you didn't get on, like, literally, it's almost like a pyramid scheme. If you don't get on, literally the ground floor in the very first few days when a guy is red hot and makes that, you know, big splash, you know, almost day over day as you go forward from there, the, you know, the, the diminishing returns start to take over, and you... You know, you start to miss the wave. And as a result, you know, even in a weekly league, you know, by the time the next Sunday comes around or whatever your fab deadline is, you know, that wave may have already crested and you may be buying into the back end of it. And so often it's it's so hard to do nothing and just let that guy go by or not make the competitive bid on them. And yet that's so often the best option. Hard thing to do, but really the best way to manage April is just to, you know, for the first few weeks is to trust the team you drafted and not overreact and feel the need to tinker every time there's another flash in the pan. Yeah, in my home league, which is an American league only, there's a guy in, in the league that routinely overreacts and acts too soon, and we were joking he traded for Ricky Romero at a very favorable price. Romero, on opening day against Cleveland, gave up four runs in five innings, and the joke around the league was that this guy's going to drop Romero because he's been a disaster, and, uh, and of course it's far too soon. But that raises the question, Ray, when should we start looking at our stats and saying we have a good handle on what we're doing here, it's time to make some changes or at least look at making some changes? 
changes and some trades. When's the earliest time you can really start seriously thinking about that? I mean, Ron Chandler said for years that you know, May fifteenth is the day when he starts taking everything seriously. I think it might be a little bit earlier than that. <coughs> Excuse me, earlier than that, but not a lot. For hitters, I always like to see hundred at bats just because it's a round number and it at least gets me into a place where I can start to look at the numbers and there's a little bit of heft behind them. And that comes generally right around the first week of May. Pitchers, you almost have to wait a bit, little bit longer, especially when you go through early season shortened outings and rainouts and extra rest and all that sort of stuff. And the pitchers, and you know, you can so often have one bad game mixed into an early first four or five starts where it was a cold night and the ball was slick or there was a ring delay or any of those sorts of things happen. And, you know, 100 at-bats for hitters starts to get some heft behind it. But for pitchers, you know, when you have four, five, six, seven starts and you look at that body of work and one or two of them you can explain away or disregard for some reason, it takes longer for pitchers. And it really is May 15th or even later before you really got to start, you, you can really put a lot of heft into a lot of weight on what a pitcher is doing. Unless they're just getting destroyed, that's the, probably the one exception to that. There are always a couple of guys every year who are just getting wrecked all throughout the month of April. And the only conclusion you can, come, you can draw, and eventually their major league team draws the same conclusion, is that they're hurt and they need to be shut down. But anyone who's not getting absolutely just wrecked and look like they don't belong on a major league roster, you, you can't help but give them the time well into May to start pitching like you think they're going to pitch. Yeah, I think pitchers are, are a special case because you, you do have to look at their game logs and say if you have two pitchers, both of whom have 450 ERAs that are disappointing you, the case might be that one of them has a bunch of sort of 325-level outings with one big nine-run disaster mixed in, which is a different kettle of fish than a guy who is routinely giving up four earned runs, five earned runs, every outing in and out, and, and just not pitching well consistently because you can kind of explain away a single bad outing, which inflates an ERA, especially with so few games in the book. So you have to kind of... Any kind of time you're looking at these kind of decisions, I think, Ray, you're right that you have to look at the complete body of work throughout the year rather than just saying, he's got a 450 ERA, I wanted 350, therefore he's got to go. Uh, this is Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with BaseballHQ.com, Managing Editor Ray Murphy. And Ray, your latest speculator column is up on BaseballHQ.com, and it's a popular one, long shot leaders and award winners. And to start with, I'd have to say that picking Evan Longoria, who hit, what, 250 last year, quite a long shot to win the batting title, isn't he? Yeah, that was sort of a, you know, out on a limb, even by speculator definition, by the speculator definition of 20% underplays, I may have been a little bit even under that line with that one. But, you know, there was, the, the principle behind it was sound and something that I wanted to underscore in that it tells you a couple of things that, you know, first of all, Gloria's batting average last year was an outlier on the low side. His uh, batting average on balls in play was something like 10% lower than it usually is. And, his expected batting average, which is you know based on the skills that underlie his performance, was you know right where it usually is, which I think was off the top of my head up in the upper two eighties or something like that. So you know even with nothing but the expected regression on the luck of batting average on balls in play, he's roughly a two eighty five two ninety hitter. And then you take into account his age, and you take into account the fact that there were some health issues last year that may have fed some bad habits at the plate. He had an elevated fly ball rate and kind of looked like at times he was trying to jerk everything out of the park. 
And the fact that the Babbitt might, might not just correct to his career levels and might go a little bit beyond that, just as you can have a bad year of Babbitt luck, you can have a good year of Babbitt luck. Any of those things can take his batting average not just back to where we think it should be historically up in the you know, 280s range, but maybe beyond that. And any, as you go beyond your 285, 290 norm, if he swings... You know, the pendulum doesn't swing back to the middle, but goes all the way in the other direction. It doesn't take more than a couple of points of favorable Babbitt luck or you know, a changed approach at the plate to hit the ball the other way because whatever knee or hip or leg or oblique or whatever untold injury was bothering him last year is out of the way now and he gets back to better fundamentals at the plate or what have you. Any of those things can come together and take him all the way from being the 240-250 hitter of last year to be a 300-plus guy this year. And sure, it's a little bit out of the limb, on the limb, but I can at least tell you, as I just did, the path by which he gets there. Ray, I drafted Shane Victorino in two leagues, including the Tout Mixed League. And boy, I sure hope you're right. He could lead the league in steals. Yeah, he's on my uh, NFBC team as well, and I'm not sure I had fully processed uh, the implications of what I wrote in the column when I drafted him. But uh, I do actually put a lot of belief in what I wrote about him in the uh, speculator column that he has, the, the, spe- the speed skills are well established throughout his career and when his stolen base numbers jump around and they went down a little bit last year, it's really a uh, function of stolen base attempts and stolen base opportunity rather than his raw speed skills which are still largely intact at age 30 or whatever he is now. Um, but the issue has always been for him, you know, when he's back in the off in Philadelphia and, you know, we hit second a lot and Howard hit third. And not only are those guys prodigious run producers, but they're also left-handed hitters. And a lot of times when Victorino was on first base, the best thing he could do was go out and take his lead and have the first baseman hold him on and create that hole for those guys to work with. Those guys aren't going to be there this year, at least to start the season. And on top of that, those guys are being replaced by you know guys who are not as not as productive at the plate, and if that leads the Phillies to get back to more of a small ball quote unquote National League style of play, where where they're trying to manufacture runs, then Victorino may be asked you know if he gets on base at a good clip to manu- help manufacture some of those runs at the top of the order. And sure enough, Victorino stole a base yesterday on opening day, and the Phillies won one nothing. There you go. We just need that to happen every day, every day all season. Victor, you know, have 162 stolen bases, right? That's exactly right. And, and from your lips to God's ear, Ray, from your lips to God's ear, may I just say, uh, it wouldn't be a long shot anything if you didn't talk about Adam Dunn in some respect, but uh, to lead the American League in homers. Well, you know, if we just took a little eraser to the disaster that was last year with Adam Dunn and went back to the home run production of prior years, which was, you know, it's well documented. It was pretty much a metronome that went like 38, 38, 40, 40, 38, or something like that, as I remember. Um, you know, <clears throat> we don't have a full explanation of what happened last year. You know, we're starting to piece more together that I think uh, I've read that there was a, you know, personal situation in play, and certainly there was the appendectomy at the beginning of the season that, you know, may have lingered, you know, a whole bunch of possible theories. And, you know, I could, I would just be guessing if I tried to assign percentage weights to any of those theories and how how much impact they finally they actually did have on the situation. Um, and as much as we caution people to not look at spring training statistics, in a case like Dunn's where last year was so terrible and so out of the blue, you almost can't help but look and see what was going on in March. And he was really, really good in March, not just from a home run production perspective, but from getting back to controlling the strike zone. And if you look back at what had gone wrong with Dunn, not just last year, but the 
you know, the bit of deterioration you saw in Washington and in the couple of years previous to last year's collapse as far as his batting eye, which has always been very good, was eroding a little bit. The fact that he had something like, I'm off the top of my head, like something like 12 walks and four strikeouts in spring training this year, just really you know, reassured me just in the sense of, hey, he realized there's a problem. And not just he realized there was a problem that he had won 40 last year or whatever it was, but that he realized that his point coverage had eroded and that was something he was consciously working on in spring training. That was reassuring, not enough to make me just think he can come all, go all the way back, but in the sense that I think his approach to solving the problem looks like a good one. Ray, when will you be posting your long shot pitchers and your long shot award winners? That should be up on the site this weekend. I'm actually working on it today, and we'll get it published in the next couple of days. Ideally, I would have, of course, had all of these columns up before uh, before opening day so I could get them on the record before we got any actual data points in. But, uh, you know, I'll get it up during these first series. The, the first series, I'll let everyone review them, uh, you know, on the site, I would say, Monday the latest. And hopefully all right, this is Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy, the managing editor at BaseballHQ.com. And, Ray, before I let you go, I have to get you to put on your managing editor's cap. You have the uh, HQ site running smoothly after what was a very large and significant off-season upgrade. And I'm wondering, uh, are there any further improvements in line during the season? Yeah, we've got a few more things up our sleeve, really, to be completely honest with you. When we launched the site in January, it was, uh, you know, launching it so close to our peak season of traffic in, you know, February and March, and everyone in draft prep mode, and we really just had to make sure everything worked, and we were really, I don't want to say we were holding on for dear life, but when we were balancing further improvements we could make to the site versus weighing those against um, just keeping things stable and making sure the draft guides were available and the projections were there, and the columns were up every day. We really just had to keep things running. And now that, you know, certainly traffic uh, on the site remains active in the early part of the season, but, you know, now that we've gotten everyone through their drafts and we won't get the complaints from people who say, hey, it's Friday night, I need to print out my cheat sheet before the draft tomorrow and you guys were doing something to the site. Now that we're out of that mode, we'll be able to, you know, do some more cleanup on some of the stuff that, um, we're not still quite happy with from the transition. You know, we're still going to be bringing over some older content from the old site. We're still going to um, be doing a little bit of work in the early part of the season to get our in-season tools working properly because those weren't in a place where we could really work on them in January. So our leading indicators reports, our surgeries and faders, our bullpen indicators, the starting pitching matchup report, which is one of my personal favorite tools on the site, is up and running this week. So we'll have that in you know, if for the first couple of weeks, that needs to collect some data on uh, how both pitchers and teams are doing this year. But sort of by the end of April, you get to the point where that tool becomes pretty powerful for you know, predicting the outcome of an individual start. So, uh, you know, a lot of those tools that you know, we rely on in season, we still have to do a little bit of uh, spit polish on over the next couple of weeks. So we'll be doing that first. And then as we get into, you know, I would say May, then we're probably going to be at the point where we can uh, – really button down the site and get it to be uh, exactly where we want it to be. We, we did a great job, uh, our technical team did a great job to get uh, get us 80 or 90% of the way there before draft season, but now you know, there's that little bit of cleanup work to do, and we're going to definitely double back and do that in the coming weeks and months. Ray, we started by talking about the Red Sox, and I'd like to finish because something popped into my head uh, while we were talking, and that is the whole 
Melanson versus Aceves issue as the closer, and a couple of other things that have gone on have some media people speculating that maybe Bobby Valentine's trying to throw his weight around a bit with a new young general manager, Ben Charrington. Are, are you getting any sense of that, that there's a bit of a, a struggle for the ear of the leadership of the team and that uh, Bobby Valentine's trying to exert a little more pressure than Francona might have under similar circumstances with Theo? Is there anything like that? Um, you know, I actually believe most of what Valentine said when he was asked that, that he thought that was, I think he used the term, it was a lazy story written by the media that could have been written in December and put on a shelf to be, to be uh, published in March. And I thought that was a pretty interesting way of putting it. I think the root issue at play, and I think it really comes back to Daniel Bard, um, which I think has been the real flashpoint between Valentine and the front office, is that Valentine's been around these guys for like a month now. And... You know, even though Charrington's new at the general manager role, the guys in the front office who make up the Green Trust are the ones who signed Bart and developed Bart and brought Bart along for six years he's been in the organization now or whatever it is. And they are much more familiar with Bart's entire body of work, whereas Valentine, his, his, his body of knowledge on Bart goes down to what he's seen for four weeks of spring training this year, plus whatever he's seen when he's covered them on ESPN over the last couple of years which is a drop in the bucket compared to the organizational knowledge of the guy. So Valentine, I mean, it's not a fault of his, but he's being forced to make relatively snap decisions on these guys with a lot less of a body, body of work uh, behind those decisions, whereas the front office has that much longer-term track record and knowledge of these guys, and they know what they projected them to be five years ago and know how far they've come close to achieving that now. So. I would imagine the information exchange between Valentine and the front office on that has been a little bit of where the uh, friction has arisen because I, you know, knowing what I know of the Sox front office, they are inundating Valentine with data. And Valentine, not that I don't think he's receptive to the data, but I think there's probably some disconnect between what the data is telling him or what the historical profile has been on a guy versus what he's seen in his four weeks with his own eyes. And it's always difficult to reconcile what your eyes are telling you versus what a report is telling you. And then my, my own theory is that that's where the problem is right now. And there's really no substitute for fixing that other than time. And whether Valentine gets the time to do that um, over the coming years, I guess, is the million dollar question. Whether he actually lasts long enough in the job to actually develop his own comfort level with the assets he has on hand. With that in mind, Ray, were you surprised when they hired a guy to be a manager, given the they have Bill James in their front office, they have a lot of guys who understand the application of data. Were you at all surprised that they hired a manager who really is not on the forefront of that kind of thinking? You know, Valentine paid a lot of good service to being on the forefront, to, to at least being open to that sort of thinking um, during the interview process or during his media portion of the interview process, I guess. And I don't know how much stock I put in that but I assume the front office put enough stock in it since he got the job. The part of Valentine getting hired that I actually liked or agreed with was, I think, after the collapse last year and after the, uh, the way Francona, um, you know, not necessarily a fault of his, but the way he was such a steadfast defender of the players and didn't get the return back from the players toward the end about that, where they sort of started saying he had lost the clubhouse and that sort of thing. I think the part of Valentine that they really liked where it really appealed to them in concept was the idea that he could be the lightning rod and that they actually thought they needed the guy who wore the funny wig and glasses and the Mets dug out after he got ejected from the game. And they wanted him 
someone who could come in and be the center of attention rather than the players and could deflect some of the Boston media spotlight away from the players and absorb it himself. And I think there's a certain amount of logic to that, but what are they trading off to get that guy? And is that guy someone that the front office can actually work with? I think still remains the open question. All right, Ray, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again, I'm sure, during the year. Always a pleasure, Patrick. Ray Murphy is the managing editor and speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com. Our regular commentaries are coming up next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. Matt Beagle is on deck with the Market Pulse. We have BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler in the hole with Master Notes. But leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com Minor League expert Rob Gordon telling us about Cincinnati shortstop Zach Cozart. The Cincinnati Red Zach Cozart doesn't get a lot of attention, but now that he has secured the starting shortstop job in Cincinnati, he has to be considered at least a decent candidate for the National League Rookie of the Year award. At 26, Cozart is older than your average prospect, but he did have a nice breakout season in 2011. In 323 at-bats for AAA Louisville, Cozart hit 310 with a 357 on on-base percentage and a decent 467 slugging percentage. Cozart continued to hit when he was called up in July, only to have his season cut short by an elbow injury that required off-season surgery. Cozart is 100% this spring and is a plus defender with good hands, good range, and a strong arm. Offensively, Cozart has good bat control and puts the ball into play on a regular basis. He draws a decent number of walks, but still strikes out too frequently. He has above-average speed and in 2010 stole 30 bases in 34 attempts, but isn't likely to be a prolific base dealer in the majors. While Cozart has the potential to hit for average, his long-term value will really be determined by his ability to hit for power. In 2011, Cozart hit just seven home runs, but he did have 26 doubles in those 323 at-bats, and in 2010 he had 30 doubles and 17 home runs. Cozart's power will likely play up in Great American Ballpark, and given his age and lengthy minor league experience, he's less likely to be overwhelmed than other prospects might be. If Zach Cozart manages to hit for moderate power and plays solid defense, he could have plenty of value in 2012. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon and Jeremy Deloney have reports and updates on the top prospects, as well as organization moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on those rising stars. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about avoiding cognitive dissonance after the draft. Have you ever experienced buyer's remorse? Maybe after buying a car, a home, some huge purchase the next day, or maybe while you're signing those closing papers, you kind of got that bit of apprehension. Did I do the right thing? In marketing academia, we call this cognitive dissonance. And that's the natural feeling that whenever you make a major decision, you start to wonder, did I really do the right thing? 
After your draft, this can be the biggest threat to your team going forward. You go through all the euphoria of getting the players you want, missing out on a few, and you're so excited to review your roster after the draft. But then the next day when you look at it, it's not quite as great as you thought the first time. Doesn't mean it's bad, but you immediately start to kind of panic and want to immediately fill those holes. The season's barely underway, but you already, because you think about your team so much, the tiny hole you thought about during the draft is now a glaring hole as you dwell on it, hour after hour. So you start making trade offers, and before you know it, you've undone one of the major tenets of your draft. For example, we say buy hitters early. They're less risky than pitchers. You do that through the draft. You execute it perfectly. You find some nice guys in the second half, but you run the projections and see your team finishing near the bottom of the pack. You forget about the risk inherent in pitchers, and therefore, as you analyze your team right now, with perfect information, projections, being at the middle or the bottom, not at the top. So you immediately panic and go to make a move. Trust your instincts. Remember, there's a lot of things about this game and this season we don't know yet. Exercise excruciating patience. Wait for the season to unfold. Stick with your draft. Stick with your instincts at that time. If someone offers you a really stupid offer of a player you would have taken three rounds earlier, of course make that trade. But don't over-tweak your team. Stick to your plan, understand that we don't know what's going to happen yet, and let the season play out a little bit before you do a knee-jerk reaction that you're going to regret later. With the Market false for Baseball HQ and HQ.com, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about managing the false certainty of opening day rosters. I'm now hosting an online chat every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time at USAToday.com. Each week's link is available at BaseballHQ.com. This week I received the following question. Ron, our league still drafts by the archaic, must-be-on-opening-day-roster program. Any idea where we can get these opening-day rosters? These are archaic rules. It's tough to find a definitive list these days because rosters are fluid. Yes, Major League teams had to get their rosters down to 25 men by opening day, but that specific group of 750 players was different within hours. Players hit the DL, fifth starters aren't needed for a week, players on bereavement leave, all these make the 25-man limit a very fuzzy line. What's more, our obsession with finding out who landed roles as of April 4th anchors us into a false reality. Should we be treating these events as fixed? Should we now invest full value in Tyler Pasternicki since he won the second-base job in Atlanta? What if he goes 3-for-30 during the first week? Is Liam Hendricks a rosterable commodity given that he could lose his rotation spot once Scott Baker comes off the DL in a week? And no sooner than I wrote about the eight new frontline closers since last fall, a ninth one was added to the list this week. What are we chasing after? Rosters and roles are changing constantly in this game trying to designate a single point as to when we'll freeze reality for our drafts, well, well, that almost defeats the purpose of playing a six-month game. 
We've recognized this environment in Tout Wars, so we've adopted a unique, yet wholly logical rule. Simply, you can draft anybody. Doesn't matter where they are as of draft day, the majors, the minors, Japan, high school. If you want to spend your precious auction dollars or waste a draft pick on a single-A player, it's your roster, go nuts. This opened things up incredibly. We don't have to worry about players making the cut. If we believe they are skilled enough and will eventually merit a call-up, we can still draft them. If I'm convinced that Chris Nelson and Jordan Pacheco won't last the month as the Rockies' third baseman, I can draft Nolan Arenado. Or Brandon Wood. At the Tout Wars drafts, I could draft Andy Pettit or Roy Oswalt, thereby avoiding likely fab bidding wars later in the season. Just tuck them on reserve. The only downside to this is it prevents an accurate read of the draft pool. You may run your projected values and rankings on the players who you believe will be drafted, but if a few of your owners want to take a late-round flyer on last year's top amateur draft picks, well, that will skew the pool. Still, everyone faces the same obstacle, so the playing field remains level. It provides a bit more of a challenge, but it also gives owners a ton more flexibility in assembling their rosters. And it resolves the problem of finding an official list of opening day rosters. Because that list is hardly representative of this year's player pool anyway. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler writes a weekly column every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about pundits on parade, the differing player projections by various experts and websites. As you heard, Ron also has a weekly chat every Wednesday morning at 11 o'clock Eastern at usatoday.com, and he discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at baseballhq.com. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to baseballhq.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also has his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of April 7th, show number 12 in the books. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to Baseball HQ Radio. Please tell your friends about our show and have them take a second to go to iTunes and give us those five stars that keep us going. We really do appreciate it. BaseballHQ.com is a free podcast. It's available every week through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from the website at BaseballHQ.com. I also want to thank our guests today from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, starting with managing editor Ray Murphy. A smart guy, really follows the game. It's always good to talk with Ray. Our Market Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and columnist Matt Beagle, who was also our Market Pulse commentator this week. Our minor league expert was Rob Gordon and our Master Notes commentator, Ron Chandler. We have some great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Be sure to check out Neil Fitzgerald's research into strength of schedule and Jeremy Deloney's report on the top prospects as relief pitchers. Plus, we have all our regular features, playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and much more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide appears every Tuesday at BaseballHQ.com. I also have a Roto Strategy article about being methodical in assessing your chances on the site now. Pretty apropos, considering what we were talking about earlier with Ray. In the meantime, I hope to see you on the forums. 
Check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. And we'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the individuals speaking and not necessarily those of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.